Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 79 of the Water Women Podcast. That blows my mind. I am so excited to introduce you to today's water woman, Megan. She is absolutely incredible, and today's podcast is a little bit chaotic, but only because we go into a deep dive on so many different topics. We're talking Sharkpedia podcasts, we're talking octopus and sharks and minorities in aquarium zoo science. We're really all over the place in this podcast, and I can't wait for you guys to hear all about Megan and what she does because I think she's so incredible, and I know you guys are going to feel the same, so... Let's just jump in and hear from Megan. So I am absolutely stoked to have you on today. I have followed you on Twitter for a while. I am just like a really big fan. I love your podcast. So to have you on is like so cool to me. So how about you start out by introducing yourself with your name, your pronouns, and a short intro to who you are. Absolutely. So my name is Megan. My pronouns are she, her. And who am I? That's a good question. Um, I am a few things. It depends on the context of who I'm usually talking to, but I am a PhD student. So I'm a PhD student studying conservation ecology, and I'm studying seven gill sharks. So you see a lot of that. I'm also a senior biologist at a public aquarium where I care for a lot of animals and get to facilitate some really cool research out of there. And I'm also a co-host of a pod, a podcast called Sharkpedia with my co-host Amani Weber-Schultz, who's amazing, and we have so much fun on that podcast. And I'm also the co-founder of Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Science, or MIAS is the acronym, where we are trying to create equitable financial and social opportunities for BIPOC professionals in the aquarium and zoo science fields. A lot of different hats there, and I can't wait to dive into every single one of them and talk about what you do, because that's a lot to be doing. Yes, it's uh, busy. <laughs> I can imagine. Before we jump into all these super cool things that you do now, let's take it way, way back. When did you first kind of fall in love with the ocean and know that it was something that you wanted to be involved in or study? Okay, this is a great question. It's a question that I get fairly often. And to be honest, I don't super know the answer. I don't really remember a time that I wasn't super interested and fascinated with the water. It just kind of feels like it's always been a part of me. I can tell you that from like the time I was, I mean, from my first, my first ever memories are on a lake fishing, being super curious about tadpoles and things like that. And I loved every type of critter, like ants. Ants were my friends. If my sister or cousin is listening, they would definitely confirm that (laughs) because I was always bringing in like ants or snakes into the house. And I was like, look at my friends and like rescuing the spiders in the house. And like, I've just always been a critter person in general. I think I've always appreciated life, uh, animal life in all forms, like regardless of what kind of form of life that is, I've just always been super curious. And so, yeah, I've just kind of always been very intrigued by the water. And to be honest, I think I used to be pretty nervous about things in the water. And I just started to finally put my face like in the water. And when I can put my face in the water and start asking more inquisitive questions about what's underneath there, I don't feel so nervous anymore. I feel like I can be part of that ecosystem as well. So yeah, I've just always been fascinated and always wanted to see what's underneath that ocean surface because it just seems so unknown. Absolutely. I really like that you did kind of have those like fears or reservations of like, I'm not sure what's under there, what's in there, because I think it's a healthy fear to have with the ocean. There's a lot of stuff in there that is freaky and you don't have to be afraid of it, but you do have to respect it. Egg, yeah absolutely you absolutely have to respect it I totally agree that with that that's kind of like the you can be nervous but just like just know that things could hurt you and be okay with it kind of thing yeah Yeah. respect it respect creatures spaces and they respect yours and I think I always like to view it as like you're part of the ecosystem when you enter the ocean we're part of every ecosystem that we're a part of whether you're in a city or in the suburbs or in the middle of the mountains you're part of that ecosystem and 
you're part of that ecosystem as well when you open you enter the ocean so i just think it's good to have a respect for the ocean and the animals that live there full-time and you're visiting that ecosystem so it's good to have respect for for the animals that live there all the time absolutely so when was the moment that you were like oh i can like pursue this and like do this in school when you loved the environment like what made you realize you could do that or what made you want to pursue that or was it just kind of like a natural like there was no question you were going into environmental sciences of some sort yeah I think it's it was never really a question I think I always knew that I was going to be um doing some sort of environmental science in general. I can't lie I like grew up watching Animal Planet like that I lived on Animal Planet like Steve uh, Irwin and Jeff Corwin were like the naturalists that I grew up watching and just being so fascinated by everything that they did. I can't tell you how amazing it would have been to see someone that looked like me on the screen doing those things. I think we're starting to see more of that. I'm grateful that I still saw myself in this field, even though there wasn't representation at the time. But um, I think I just always knew, like I, I knew that I was going to do something environmental science. I didn't know what that looked like, but I got here. <laughs> kind you did. Of. You did. That's what matters. You're you're at least pretty much there. You're you're almost to the finish line now. If there ever is a finish line. You know, I was just going to say, I'm 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 going to reaffirm myself for a second. I am here. I'm a scientist. I'm a marine you scientist. Are. I'm totally. And I was just talking to my other girlfriends about this that are also marine science, and there's like the thing about science is that there is just never a finish line. So you're always just like in one phase of your scientific career and you're like, how do I get to that next step? I, I'm i not sure. <laughs> when is that going to happen? How do I get there? And so I just like, I think that's like a big part of like the imposter syndrome of marine scientists is that you always are thinking about how do I get to the next step? So I just want to reaffirm everyone out there. You know what? If you're a student in marine science you are a marine scientist so let me just reaffirm that (laughs) absolutely yes literally the other day I was talking to my sister and I was like my master's got pushed because of uh COVID obviously as oh yeah Yeah. I was like oh I feel so behind and she was like behind compared to what like there's no yeah timeline for you here there's no like you're still doing things like you're fine and it really is like it was an affirmation of like I still am a marine scientist despite not being in my master's right now like it oh yeah it's nice to have that so what did you take in your undergrad did you do a master's tell us a little bit about your education journey sure yeah my education journey is not linear and I think it's good for people to hear that because absolutely sometimes it feels like it has to be your path must be linear to like fit in and that's just not the case So in my undergrad, I went to Oregon State University, which was an incredible experience for me. I did the undergrad marine option there where you live out in Newport, Oregon, and you get, you know, your arms deep in the tide pools there. And I I grew a really strong appreciation for the intertidal and marine invertebrates. And I think I've just always been kind of a champion for the underdog and the small creatures that don't always get recognition. And I think Oregon State really kind of reaffirmed that for me and I really loved that experience. I was also able to do, I was really fortunate. I worked really hard to get some scholarship opportunities to do a study abroad program in Bonaire in the Dutch Caribbean. And so I studied coral reef ecology there. And so I think one of the things that I tried to do really hard in my undergrad was like, there are so many different avenues in marine science. And I challenged myself in my undergrad to just like try every corner that I could that was super different. So I did like intertidal ecology on the Oregon coast. And then I went to Bonaire and did coral reef ecology. And then I went to Alaska on an internship and studied humpback whale um, sound science, like listening to their their communication up in, in Alaska with a grad student that was doing her her master's work up there. And I just really tried to diversify as much as possible. And then I... I always think this is kind of funny. I did an internship at an aquarium at Oregon Coast Aquarium, and I did it because it was in my backyard when I was doing my undergrad, and I was like, I'm just doing this because it's convenient, and I'm doing it to show myself that this is not a corner of marine science I want to pursue, (laughs) Um, which is just, like, laughable now because I – 
it's the avenue I ended up finding a really interesting niche in. Um, so that was kind of my undergrad experience. I don't quite remember every course I took, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, I did a lot of different just marine biology required courses. <clears throat> and then because I did this internship at Oregon Coast Aquarium, I just I saw this incredible platform I had never seen before where we were out diving on the Oregon coast. We were supporting fish and wildlife doing these surveys. And in the same day, I was doing a tide pool talk with our visitors and explaining the science that we were just supporting and explaining to them the animals that they are interacting with at the touch pool with these sea stars. Like I was trying to explain the ecology that was going on on the Oregon coast and the research that was being done about it. And it was just this really light bulb moment for me that these type of nonprofit institutions can be really great avenues to not only conduct science, but actually communicate that science to the general public in a way that often scientists don't have the opportunity to do. Yeah, absolutely. So that like set off my whole career. Um, I thought I was going to be the person, like I said before, I thought my career was going to be linear. So I thought that I was going to go straight from undergrad to a PhD and I was going to know exactly what I was doing. And my goal was to have my PhD by the time I was 30 and like have my own lab and like have my life together and whatever that means, whatever having (laughs) your life together means. Um, So that's what I thought I was going to do. That's not at all what happened. I fell in love with this platform of using nonprofit facilities. And I did the aquarium science program in Newport, Oregon, right after my undergrad. If you already have a bachelor's degree, it's a one-year certificate. Wow. They teach you everything you could possibly need to know about being an aquarium biologist in terms of like, you can do a physical on a shark and know what that means. How do you pull its blood? How do you measure it? How do you put it into tonic immobility in a way that's safe for you and safe for the shark and how do you work with the veterinary staff to get the information that you need from that animal how do you balance water chemistry like everything that you could possibly think to need to know and I also found that really valuable because even if I did want to lead a lab I want to be able to know how to to care for the animals that we might be studying in a lab so it's just an incredible program that I highly recommend checking out um if you're interested in aquarium science at all. That's so cool. And like, so useful for so many different things. Like you mentioned, like if you want to have your lab, like that just teaches you in a way to be so hands-on. That's such a useful thing. Yeah, I I think I was really interested in doing that because actually when I was in Bonaire, we wanted to bring some of the animals into the lab to like study them close up for a while. And I was just like not confident about building that aquarium system and knowing how to balance the water chemistry and knowing definitively if like the experiment I was doing was affecting that animal or if it was the water chemistry or something else. And so getting that degree was it it really gave me that confidence. I can definitely definitively say if there's a disease going on or something with the water chemistry versus like something that you're actually trying to to observe with that species. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was definitely something unexpected that I wasn't planning on doing that I ended up doing. (laughs) But you know, aren't those the best things? Like the things that you're like, I will never do this. And then it's like, here I am doing this. Oh, yeah. I also told my husband once upon a time that I would never live in San Francisco. And here we are. I'm in San Francisco. (laughs) I love that. It's always the things that you're like, I will never do this. Oh yeah, doing, and it's like, well, you know what? Never mind. Yeah, I mean, that's just the universe saying, like, okay, that's cute. Like, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. I love that. So, I have a question about your masters. When did you do your masters? And you have one of the coolest masters topics, I think. I think it's we could open up a can of worms here with what you talked about. So, what was your masters? Yeah, so I did my master's in behavior and physiology of octopuses. And so I did that because I started my career as an aquarium biologist and I wanted to facilitate research out of nonprofit facilities, like I was saying. And so I was working with cephalopods and there's just so many things that we don't know about cephalopods. And if you aren't aware, cephalopods is the group of animals that includes octopuses, squids, cuttlefish, and nautiluses. And 
Yeah, I, I had a lot of questions about their reproduction. So giant Pacific octopuses is one of the species that I was working with. And they go through a single reproductive event. So we kind of deem it senescence. It's the end of their life. And they're called semelparis. They're a semelparis species, which means they'll only reproduce once. And it's a terminal event. So they eventually die. And I find that process incredibly interesting. Um, Just from, I don't know, maybe a philosophical standpoint, I think it's really interesting to have such an intelligent species that has this terminal reproductive event. But then from a care standpoint, when we're caring for these animals, you know, this process is not subtle. Uh, If you've ever seen salmon swimming upstream when they're going to spawn, they're like falling apart, their skin is falling apart. They literally, they spawn and then the females die and their carcasses become this really great nutrient source for the riverbed. And honestly, like octopuses are kind of similar. Like when they go through that terminal reproductive event, they quite literally start falling apart. They stop eating, they go anorexic, they're losing weight. Sometimes their skin gets really thin and just friable and their morphology is just different. And so I was really curious about that experience and and we you know we can't speak cephalopods so how do you interpret how they look into how are they actually feeling and maybe not how they are feeling but how is their welfare are they healthy are they not healthy are they suffering are they not suffering and especially when you're responsible for the animal's care that's a really important question to be able to answer so I did a lot of really cool research. We took lots of biopsies of their nerve cords, and I got to do lots of cool neurophysiology, which I never thought I was going to be able to do, where we I took lots of cross-sections of arms from people donated samples all across the United States and Canada, and so I got to see really cool samples of these senescent octopuses and what happens to their nerve cords. And if you don't, I shouldn't talk like people know what I'm talking about, uh, octopuses have like insane nervous systems like so insane like they have more nerves in like a very small area on their arm than like our entire body like they just have such extensive neural networks so wild and they're just like constantly interpreting their environment at all times and so their nerve cord takes up like so much space in their actually I guess not a ton of space for a giant Pacific octopus, but it's this thick nerve cord going all the way down each arm that's responsible for lots of different functions. And so I was able to look at the cellular health of these, if this species over time and like see how they aged and and how senescence affected their nervous system and, and how that might've affected their overall behavior. So I compared their behavior and how they were experiencing their environment based on how they actually were at a cellular level. And that was like, honestly, just so fun. I, I love that work. That's amazing. I feel like they're an animal that like, everyone thinks is cool. Everyone learns about when you're a young child. Like it's one of those things that like every ocean based um, children's book has an octopus in it just because they're such a unique animal, but they're not something that's like hugely studied or at least well-known to the average person kind of thing like you're like yes an octopus cool they have eight tentacles that's kind of the extent of most people's knowledge but when you dive into it they are such intelligent animals and so cool and like every time I learn something about them I'm like what no way yeah like they're so cool yeah they're very cool and I will say that there is an entire world of cephalopod biologists out there that are so knowledgeable and very niche like my advisor was Dr. Robin Crook and she is she's very humble so I don't know how she would feel about me saying this but she's absolutely the lead physiologist and neurophysiologist looking at cephalopod pain and like trying to measure what pain means in a cephalopod and do they experience pain in the same way that a vertebrate might and she's just doing some really incredible work so the the world of cephalopod science is just It's very large and it is incredible. And I'll never stop being completely entranced with the work that cephalopod biologists do. Absolutely. So before we move on from your master's to your PhD, I have one very serious question about it that I need answered. It has been itching my brain for the past, I think, 24 years. I'm ready. 
Is it octopi or octopuses? It's octopuses, 100%. Please, all your listeners, like, if you take anything away from this podcast, like, I feel like I'm this, I don't know. This is my life's mission. Is this to, like, is the hill please, you will die on. This is the hill I will die It is octopuses. And it's for a very, you know, when, it makes sense once I'll explain it. But octopus is a Greek word. Octopi, the I for a plural, is a Latin plural. It doesn't make oh, sense. Oh, okay. Octopodes is the Greek plural. So octopodes is actually the most accurate in terms of language. Octopuses is the most colloquially accepted version so octopuses is correct um it's similar to like fish and fishes i think i said octopuses earlier when i was talking about a single species but fish is usually a whole you can talk about fish there's a bunch of them of the same species but if you're talking about multiple species it's fishes okay and same with octopus so octopus one species is octopus multiple species of octopus is octopuses okay so like if i had six of the same species i could say i have six octopus that's so cool yeah yeah that's, i think that might be the coolest thing we talk about in this podcast because that has been a Very question cool. i am so happy to be of service <laughs> that's like the most important thing because we hear like octopi octopuses octopodes like you hear them oh. all and you're like i just never know what's right and now i do so like Everything else I'm sure will be interesting, but my mind has already been blown. Like, <laughs> that's the... Oh, man. Easy audience. What exactly. else? What else can I do for you? <laughs> so how did you go from octopuses or octopus to sharks? Where was that yeah. connection with your PhD? Did it come back to like the aquarium science or yeah. what's the connection here? Yeah. Yeah. People have asked me before, are they related at all? And I'm just like, no, <laughs> they're not related. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think in terms of science in general, I didn't want to be niched into a single thing. Behavior and physiology as a a study is really important to me. I think you can apply behavior and physiology to such a wide variety of marine science. So I did that. I did that in my master's. And when I was in my master's, I knew, you know, I thought that my master's degree might be it for me and then realized like, okay, actually I do need a PhD. I need more. I want to lead science. I need more credentials. I need to learn more. And when I thought about what skills do I really want to acquire in my PhD, I wanted to take behavior and physiology, but I, I really wanted to get back in the field. I wanted to apply it to field science in some way field ecology is something that I just always feel called to. I know that I'm meant to be there. And so I started to ask, like, what are some questions that I have in the field that I could reasonably answer? Now, giant Pacific octopuses are in California, but they're much deeper in the water because they like cold water. If you Mm -hmm. go to Oregon, Washington, especially up in Alaska, they're much more shallow and easily accessible, but they're not super, super accessible in California. So doing some sort of like field research on them wasn't necessarily going to be easy breezy. Mm. Um, I have always been interested in sharks, really always. And I've worked with sharks because again, I'm an aquarium biologist. And so I thought, how can I diversify my skill set that doesn't niche me into a single group of animals. I did invertebrates. I'm doing octopuses. I did octopus research for like eight years and then got ended up getting doing a master's at the tail end of that. So I wanted to do something different. And so refocusing on sharks was felt very obvious to me. It mm-hmm. felt like something I had a lot of questions about. I'm studying the broadnose seven-gill shark. It is right in my backyard in San Francisco Bay. And It is an apex predator. When I started studying it, it was data deficient, which does not mean that we don't know anything about it. We just don't know enough to really make robust conservation assumptions about the species. And so I I saw a really big gap in knowledge in terms of their entire life history. And San Francisco Bay is the only place in the entire world where you can readily find the pups, the juveniles, the subadults, and the sexually mature adults in cool. one single location that we know of. It's yeah. not that they don't exist other places. We just haven't found them. And San Francisco Bay is, like I said, right in my backyard. So it just seemed like there was a lot of questions I had about this species that nobody knew how to answer. And nobody seems to really be looking at. There hasn't really been a ton of research on this species since 
the, the 80s and 90s. So just kind of felt like a natural place yeah. um, for me to start to look at. Um, and yeah, if my, if my experience is a testimony for anyone, it's that, you know, you don't have to be niched in a single box. I don't think you have to just be a shark scientist. You don't have to just be an octopus scientist. I think if you're a scientist, if you're a marine scientist, you can really apply these questions and concepts to any taxa. Absolutely. Um, and I was just drawn to, yeah, I think diversifying what I'd already done. I didn't want to like get stuck in the same thing. Yeah. It can almost be like in a loop of like, you're only talking about one thing. You're only hearing about one thing. It's almost like you're shutting yourself out and you have to seek out information about the ocean and its health in other ways rather than just like hearing about it because you're in such like myself I I research whales and sometimes I get so caught up in the whales that I'm like I literally forgot that sharks existed for yeah a totally like, and okay to be fair like if my entire career was octopuses I'd be very happy <laughs> like really <laughs> how would you know they're incredibly cool animals, so it's not to say that that's not interesting, but I I just personally, especially for my career, I wanted to use these facilities to diversify the research that we were doing and to really help facilities do that. I needed to diversify my own skill set so that I could help Absolutely. facilities ask lots of um diverse questions about the ocean Absolutely. and I feel like this kind of goes back to us talking about how your path wasn't linear like nobody's path is going to be linear people are going to want to be niche into one topic and people are going to want to have their resume have diverse topics on it like there's no two people within this uh, niche itself that are going to be the two same drives kind of thing yeah totally and like just to like bounce off of that like you shouldn't be somebody's clone. You don't yes. want to be somebody's clone. Like if yeah. you're looking to do a graduate program, don't find an advisor that you want to be the clone of. Find the advisor that will facilitate and empower you to be your own scientist because we don't need another whoever your PI is. We need exactly. you. And so find the person that sees you and is going to empower exactly who you are as a scientist. I love that advice. That I think that's very important because I feel like sometimes it gets caught up in like, I'm going to be just like you. And it's like, okay, well, I'm already me. So how yep. about you just be you and be totally. inspired by this other work? Like Totally. Absolutely. Totally. Now, yep. to get back to your PhD, what are you doing your PhD on? What's kind of your like, I know PhDs don't really always have like a overarching question it's a lot of little ones but what is kind of your PhD on absolutely so my PhD generally is how do seven gill sharks survive and thrive to adulthood and so like I was saying San Francisco Bay is the only place that we know of where you can really readily find and access every single age stage of this species and so if you want to know how a species is going to survive to adulthood and like thrive and like what do they need at each life stage to get to adulthood so they can be sexually mature and reproduce back and contribute back into the population. I mean, having access to every age stage in one location is like, Super in my helpful. opinion, oh my gosh, it's so helpful. And in terms of shark science is like kind of hard to find. So for real. <laughs> so I feel like I kind of hit the jackpot, to be honest. So I am looking at a, a lot of different things. As you said, PhDs are not like super straightforward. Never. <laughs> never. <laughs> but I am looking at what each age class eats. So that's something really important. If you want to conserve a species, you need to know what they eat. So I'm looking at, you know, what do the pups eat? What do the juveniles eat? What do the subadults eat? And we know a little bit about what the adults eat from previous studies, but I, I have a suspicion that that has shifted quite a bit because we're seeing so much change in the ecosystem. And so I want to reevaluate the adults as well. And then we can really look at, you know, what is an impacting those age stages? Is there going to be a bottleneck that doesn't allow the pups to even survive to that next stage? Yeah. I think that's going to be really important, especially with with climate change impacts that we're seeing 
Um, San Francisco Bay is always changing. We have had issues with our salmon runs kind of everywhere. Um, and so trying to reevaluate, like, what are those prey items that the species relies on? And is there a way that we can support the species by looking at their prey items? It's like just so important. Yeah. So that's, that's one aspect. I'm looking also at exactly where those pups are because San Francisco Bay, if you've never been here, is actually pretty big. Mm. It's like, takes a while uh, to go from one end to the other. It's not just like a small little bay. It's very large. Um, and I think based on where we've been fishing that the pups really like one specific spot. Oh. And so if the pups are really vulnerable, if they're really sensitive, it might actually be somewhat easy to protect them by saying, just don't fish in this one little spot where the pups are. They need to live here. Let them grow. And then you can fish them later yeah. when they're bigger. And then the last part is looking at general physiology. So again, kind of tying it back to physiology because I'm so interested in that for my master's degree. I'm looking at their blood and their physiological stress response, which is a really long phrase to basically say I'm looking at how looking at how they stress out and do they withstand stress better than me. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, I'm like I'm I'm trying to see if they withstand handling stress pretty well. So can you fish them recreationally for sport and then put them back and they survive pretty well? Um, seven gills are fished in San Francisco Bay. There's a large community that fishes for them, that eats them. And that's something that I think surprises a lot of people that are new to shark science. But communities absolutely rely on fishing for sharks. And believe it or not, it is actually a very sustainable practice. And in some scenarios can be one of the more sustainable fisheries that we have, depending on the species. It's not every species. Some species are absolutely like critically endangered, get yeah. stressed very easily. You shouldn't touch. Um, but we need to treat each species individually yeah. and see how we can conserve them while also supporting the communities that rely on them to feed their families and for income. And that's definitely the case for some communities and some families in San Francisco. And so I'm looking at, you know, what limitations can we put on the species that supports the species to survive and grow and reproduce and keep up with anthropogenic impacts, which is the impacts of human influence? Um, what can we do for them? And what can we allow for fishers that can still sustain our economy and support the local fishers as well? And so I'm looking at... Um, how how well do they withstand being handled? Like if you wanted to go out, if you have a charter boat and you have 80 people on your vessel and you're going out for seven gills, if you have a limit, if you have a pretty small limit on how many animals you can actually land to take home and eat, can you also just keep fishing them for sport to, you know, satisfy the customers on your charter, yeah. let them go, and do they survive that pretty well? So I'm trying to answer that question. I think I already know. I, I don't necessarily want to say because yeah. I don't have the data backing me at the moment, but I want to definitively be able to find that answer so that we can support our local fishers as well. Absolutely. So how are you doing this? Like, obviously, no two days are the same when you're doing your PhD and, like, doing this type of research. But on an average day or like some of the cooler days you have, like fishing days, lab days, what does a day in your life look like? How are you collecting this data? Yeah. So for my PhD, when we're doing seven gill stuff, we have a research vessel and we go out and we, we just hook and line fish for them. So there's lots of different types of fishing methods and we just hook and line, which is just your standard rod and reel. You put bait on the hook, you drop it to the bottom, and you pull them back up. Um, it's really efficient, and we get very little bycatch that way. Or we do get bycatch, but we're able to get them off the, yeah. the hook really quickly. And it allows us to be really efficient in that aspect, just like try to get our target species really quickly. So we have a couple of different sample locations and depending on where we go, we're going to find a different size class. So actually I'm going fishing tomorrow exactly. and we're going to the adult fishing site where we typically see the very large 
sexually reproductive adults. And so um, we might not get a ton of animals. They're not as thick in those areas. They don't necessarily group together as much. But then if we go to the pupping site where we see lots of little, small, tiny sharks from like 40 centimeters to about 160 centimeters, which is a very large range, um, we, I mean, they can be thick, like, especially when we find that spot, which I'm trying to define as like the specific niche nursery habitat for them. We might find, I mean, like we can't keep up with how many sharks are on the lines. We like have oh, to wow. pull them up because there's just so many, um, which is a great problem to have really, really good problem to have. So depending on what the site we go, will determine how chaotic it might be that day. <laughs> Um, but then we're getting a, a lot of different samples. So to answer some of these questions, I'm pulling their blood. So that's one of the first things I do. And in the blood, I'm able to measure some like basic hormones and some chemical analysis like lactate acid, lactic acid, and, and how that builds up in their blood and see how they're responding to initial stress and get that baseline. And then um, depending on what we're doing that day, I might take several blood draws to see how their stress kind of accumulates over time. I might be also taking a muscle biopsy, which will help me determine basically the species that they might be eating in the bay. I'm also taking a fin clip. Um, we might be able to do some genetic analysis and see how related everyone is with those fin clips, which is just like a little clip of their fin tissue. And then I'm also, um, measuring them right that's like super important we're going to yeah. measure them we're going to see how long they are we're also going to weigh how heavy they are and that is really important to be able to start to predict like how is their body condition are these animals healthy are they like a little skinnier than we would like to see <laughs> are they like really fat and happy like those are really good and like important questions to ask so we're taking lots of different types of data when we get these animals on board yeah and then we tag them and release them Cool. So two questions off the top of my head with that. Do you have a shark scale? To weigh them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have like a hanging scale. So we'll put Amazing. them in a... Yeah, we put them in a stretcher, like a soft canvas stretcher um, that's nice and hopefully mostly comfy for them. And then we hang it on this like hanging scale that helps us weigh them. Okay, cool. So like I'm trying to, like I can picture that now that you've described it. Because previously I was picturing a shark trying to stand on a bathroom scale and it was a very hilarious image in my head. Oh man, I would imagine that that would be about as, um, as can't think of the word but just like I just like immediately thought about like trying to carry my dog on the scale and try to do the right? same thing like, I'm picturing like oh. you standing on the scale first to weigh yourself and then like holding the shark holding this like massive shark in your arms to try and just see how much it weighs yeah that would be very inefficient unfortunately <laughs> fortunately we have a better way to do it good I'm glad and the tags what kind of tags are you using like I you know, there's the tags that have like kind of like a just note on them that's like, if caught, please contact so and so. Or is it satellite tags? Like, what kind of tags are you using? Yeah, great question. So at the moment, we're just using those ID tags that you said um, the first um, the first thing you said. So it's just called a spaghetti tag, and it has my phone number on it and an ID number for that animal. And they will call us and tell us ideally where they found it and. Some fishers will have a measuring tape on them, and so they'll give me also some new data about how much they've grown since the last time I've seen them. Oh, cool. So that's just one tag that helps us kind of re-ID them. We are, I just put in some grants. I'm hoping to get some grant funding fairly soon that will also allow us to get some acoustic tags so we can more readily track their movement in general. Um, San Francisco Bay is like such a mecca for research and there's Fish and Wildlife and NOAA and UC Davis and all these organizations that have what are called receiver buoys in San Francisco Bay. Yeah. So there's these buoys all around the bay and under Golden Gate Bridge. And if you have a certain type of tag that you can put inside of the animal, which I hope to get the funding for, um, every time that animal passes one of those buoys in a certain distance, it will basically catalog exactly the time and date the animal past that buoy so you can start to track where they've been and when and especially when 
like San Francisco Bay is so big. And so if you make these gates, like of a, a whole line of buoys where the animal could pass, you can start to see when they might leave an area and then maybe eventually come back. So if they leave the South Bay to the Central Bay, or do they leave San Francisco Bay entirely, like go out Golden Gate Bridge? And then when do they come back? Like those are really, really important things to know, especially for something like an apex predator shark. Interesting. So lots of very, very cool research happening within this PhD that I cannot wait to see the outcome of. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so which came first? Sharkpedia or minorities in aquarium and zoo science? Um, that's a good question. They were kind of at the same time, to be honest. Yeah, they were probably about the same time. I think we did not go public with Maya's uh, Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Science. We didn't go public with that for a while because there's just so much background work that has to go into creating an organization, especially a nonprofit. We're still working towards nonprofit status, which takes time. Um, But the ideas were kind of simultaneous, to be honest. Yeah. I love that. So let's start out with the podcast then, because I feel like Maya's is going to have a big discussion there. Sure. Yep. How did you get started with the podcast? What gave you the idea? Where did it come from? What's going on there? Yeah. So Sharkpedia came about because I really love listening to podcasts. I do a lot of just kind of busy work sometimes during the day and listening to a podcast is really helpful to stay concentrated and motivated throughout the day. And I found myself constantly trying to find shark researchers on podcasts. Like I would literally jump around from podcast to podcast, just cherry picking the, the, the shark scientists that had been on there. And I just was like, oh, I wish there was a podcast. For those. This could just be like all in one place. And Amani is a friend of mine. And I just was like, Amani, like I have this crazy idea. I really want shark scientists to be on one platform so that I can find them all and even better like what if we hosted that podcast and got to know them and like had this opportunity to ask them about their own shark scientist uh their own shark science because we're early career scientists so being able to ask them about their science is just like amazing for an early career scientist like us and she was totally game so I'm super grateful that she was. We just have an absolutely wonderful time talking to some incredible scientists that have been so wonderful to us, answering all of our questions. Um, and we really love reading their awesome research and asking them how they did all this awesome research so that, you know, ourselves and other people out there can learn hopefully how to do it as well. I love that. I really, really love that. I was totally in the same space with like, creating this podcast where I go like ologies is one of my all-time favorite podcasts but there's some that I'm like this is really cool but I just like I'm not like the ocean related ones are what I'm looking for and like yeah would cherry pick like you said and so I was like why isn't there a space that's just all for this and then I was yeah. like well women are pretty cool like let's just highlight the women for now yeah <laughs> you I know? love it I love the it men have had enough time let us have our moment <laughs> Yeah, that was a priority for us too. Not necessarily just women, but we just wanted to diversify the scientists that are featured because we just had Shark Week and you typically see the same scientists on there every year. Um, They pretty much fit a single demographic and we're very, very slowly starting to see that change, but it is painfully slow. And so this was also an opportunity for us to highlight scientists that are not highlighted enough. Absolutely, absolutely. And to get those different perspectives and those different outlooks and the ones that aren't getting the time that they deserve to have, which I will say this Shark Week and Shark Fest was more refreshing than they previously have been. It has been unreally slow, like you mentioned, to get to this point. But even now turning on the TV and seeing certain people like Carly Jackson. Carly was one of my first guests on the podcast. And I remember like watching her on there and I was like, I talked to her. I know her. Like she knows who I am. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been able to watch the National Geographic Shark Fest yet that she was on. And I can't wait. That's actually like, I might do that tonight. And I just, and I'm like specifically looking for Carly because it's (laughs) just like, 
so amazing, like you said, to see representation and see actual women and like, oh, God forbid, people of color, like, come on, you guys, like, where is the diversity on these shows? So it's like, really, really awesome and like, so inspiring and soul fulfilling to see some diversity on the screen finally it absolutely slowly 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 slowly, surely but a start you know you gotta start somewhere which we should have started absolutely years ago but no time like the present and i agree amani is actually part of miss minorities yes dark science so this kind of ties in really great with your organization so tell us about your organization how it started where it came from what it is yeah so if you're familiar with MISS, which is the acronym for Minorities in Shark Science, Amani is my co-host for Sharkpedia. She's one of the co-founders for MISS. Carly Jackson that we were just talking about, also a co-founder of MISS. Incredible organization that is just absolutely just trailblazing opportunities for women of color in shark science. And it was so inspiring to me to watch them. I have to tell you, like... I have been sitting here, especially this last year, just so frustrated and feeling like I'm sick of waiting around and why aren't people doing more? And I I just felt like I had to be older or more senior in the field to make a difference. And then shark, my, Minorities in Shark Science started. And I'm pretty sure every single one of them is younger than me. <laughs> and I was just like, You're like okay. Okay. <laughs> it was incredibly humbling, to be honest, to watch them just trailblaze this organization as young women, early career women that were just like, not just like, not going to wait around. They were, they're Absolutely. not going to listen to anybody gatekeeping them. They're just like, no, we're going to no, do this. This is our space too. Absolutely. Watching them. Cause when Carly came on the podcast, it was before Miss had really, like it was just starting. And to be able to watch that grow like from the beginning to what it is now has been incredible. Amazing. It's really opened up, I think, a lot of conversations that need to be had. That desperately need to be had. And so I have told them this from the beginning, but Miss was the inspiration for Mayas. So it's not subtle at all. It was their minorities in shark science. We're minorities in aquarium and zoo science. We saw Miss. We saw what they were doing. It's a brilliant model. And in aquarium and zoo science, we need this type of work so desperately. It is, it, I, I don't even have the words. We actually don't have the statistics, uh, the demographic statistics to know for sure what representation exists in aquarium and zoo science. I specifically work at public aquariums. And I will tell you from being in this industry for eight or nine years now and going to national conferences or sometimes international conferences, it is it is painfully a single demographic. It is absolutely like white is the demographic and it is primarily male, especially in leadership positions. Oh, big time. There, and my co-founder is Jenny Jansen. And she's a minority, and she started trying to name all of the minorities that she could think of in the whole industry. And the list was painfully short. I mean, painfully, painfully short. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that this industry has developed a industry of privilege. It is extremely cost prohibitive to get in this field. It is a pay-to-play. It is also who you know. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a minority trying to get in this field and you don't know anybody, especially anybody that looks like you, and it's incredibly cost prohibitive to get in this field, it's just not subtle. It is just, it is so prohibitive for a BIPOC professional to really enter this field, probably not feeling very welcome, and then also to retain BIPOC professionals in this industry is a challenge. And so I went to Jenny, who is my co-founder, and I said, listen, I have seen Miss. They're all young women. I just feel like I can't keep sitting around here. I'm white, by the way. I know that the listeners can't hear me or can't see me. Um, I'm white, and I feel very frustrated watching the leaders in my industry not do anything. Not yet. And 
I don't think it is fair to ask our BIPOC professionals that currently exist, the very few of them that do exist in this field, to be doing the work to make this space more equitable. I think that it is absolutely up to people that look like me to make this space more welcoming and more equitable for everyone. Absolutely. So that's what inspired Maya's. And I I only say this, you know, I, I'm not saying this as any sort of recognition to myself. I more just want people to know that I think when people talk about diversity and equity, people get really uncomfortable and especially white people get very uncomfortable about talking about these very important issues. And what I have to say to you is that get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think we need to have these conversations. And if you're in a a place of privilege, if whether that's because of your ethnicity or because of your position of power, those are privileges that can absolutely benefit other people by using that position of power to make this space better, more equitable, more inclusive. And so if you're, again, if you're not familiar with the MIST model, we are vetting in non-minorities to train them to do allyship workshops to learn what it means if you're a manager what kind of mindsets do you need to kind of change and think about that would make this space more equitable to the people that you're going to hire Mm. Um, we're trying to create mentorships so that veterans in this field can be direct career mentors to our members if they want a mentor Um, they can also be conference mentors because again this field is about who you know not what Mm. you know So if you go to a conference, we want all of our members to have conference mentors that are not there to be their parent, but they are there to make sure that they have the invitation to lunch. They have an invitation to those off-schedule social activities. The networking kind of things. The networking things so that they actually have an opportunity to meet people and feel welcome and be in those social settings to make those connections. And then we're working on a nonprofit status to hopefully also be able to create some financial opportunities to support our BIPOC members, to get to conferences, to go to programs like the Aquarium Science Program like I did. I would love to be able to fund some scholarships for our members to go do those programs. Those programs have the Aquarium Science Program itself has a 94% success rate of students getting a job within six months of graduating in this field which is an extremely high success rate. Yeah. So if we can fund some of our members to go to those programs, we instantly bolster their resume. We give them the resources that they need and we increase their chances of getting a position in this field. Okay. So we're, we're, this is, we're still new. We're still growing. Please check us out at bias.org. Um, you can, if you're a minority and you're interested in this field, we have a place for you. We would love to see you be a member and participate, and hopefully we'll have some really great opportunities, whether that's financially or socially, or hopefully some workshops coming up as well. And if you're not a minority and you're in this field, we need you. We need you here to help make the space more equitable so you can also check us out to learn what it means to be a Maya's friend and take some of those courses. You can be a mentor. You don't have to be. You can just be a supportive body within our organization to make sure that our members are completely supported as they try to navigate this field. Absolutely. I think it's important. I feel like sometimes as a white person, you get into that, you mentioned comfort, you get into this like almost bed of comfort of being able to say, oh, I'm white. I can't speak on this issue. Like I should leave this up to those BIPOC to speak on their own issues. But sometimes it's like, if no one's listening to them, they need more voices. Like, it's like, hey, shut up for a second, listen. And give yeah. them, giving the opportunity and people that are supporting to give the opportunity. And yeah. you, like you said, get uncomfortable or get comfortable with being uncomfortable and being being able to share the stage and pass on the information and not hold that to yourself. And also 
be willing to be wrong and be corrected. I, I'm sure that I've said something today that someone might reach out and correct me about. And I welcome that. I, I think that for so long, I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing that I didn't say anything. And that, that is the worst thing I think we can do is to not say anything. That is the reason why we are still in the place that we are in, in the USA and as a society in general. So I think if you are wanting to say something, say something and then be ready to listen to the response, be willing to be corrected, correct those assumptions or behaviors and be better. We're, we need to be better. We all need to be better. It is time to listen. It is time to be better. It's time to speak up. And we're hoping to create opportunities where if you're wanting to put those things into action, check out these organizations. There's a lot of them that are out here that are coming out where you can put your desire to do better. You can put that into action, whether that's with Miss or Mayas. There's also BIPOC and Marine Science. There's Latinx and Marine Science. There's incredible organizations that you should absolutely check out. We also, I would be remiss not to say, we're about to have our first and annual conference Woo-hoo. called POC, which is P-O-S-E-A. So it's a play on the POC oh, acronym. Cute. And we have incredible incredible marine scientists that are going to be our speakers and registration is now open so you should absolutely check out the POC conference it's going to be October 1st to 3rd and I'm really looking forward to to seeing um, awesome diverse marine scientists that have incredible science that I can't wait to learn from I love that that is so amazing and Definitely go check that out. And you said you can find more about from Mayas on your website? Yeah, you can go to mayas.org. That's M-I-A-Z-S dot org. And I believe that we should have a link to that conference as well. If we don't, I will make sure that's up tonight. Um, So please do check that out. If you go check out any of the Mayas social media pages, um, you can follow Mayas at Mayas underscore now in OW at Twitter and Instagram. So we have more information about the conference there. It's also on Mrs. website and Mrs. Um, uh, social media pages. So you can definitely find the conference if you go check out our pages. I love that. And now if people wanted to follow along with you and your academic journey and your personal journey, is there anywhere on social media they can check you out? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm most active on Twitter. So you can follow me at Meg Holst. M-E-G-H-O-L-S-T. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm trying to be better and figure out Instagram. Um, I don't post there quite as much, but you can definitely follow me there. I have some fun stories that are on there sometimes, especially when I go out into the field for shark fishing tomorrow. I'll probably have some cool shark videos up on my stories. Um, But yeah, follow me on Twitter. You know, something that I just try to reiterate and that I love to end on in general is if you want to be a scientist, there is space for you in this field. Um, find a mentor, like I said, that sees you, that is not going to try to just use you as their clone or something. If you're asking a question that somebody else hasn't answered, you're already a scientist. So there is space for you in this field. There are mentors in this field that are absolutely here and ready and waiting to support you. So find those mentors. Go check out these organizations that you might fit into that can help you get into these organizations. Um, And always feel free to reach out. I have open DMs, so you're welcome to DM me if you ever have any questions. I love that. And I think that, like, right what you said at the very end there is so, so important is if you ever have questions about things in this field, if you DM someone, there's a good chance they're going to be willing to sit down and talk to you or at least answer a question. There's none of us really that are like, no, I don't want to talk about what I do. That's all we want to do. All we want to do is talk about what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I find that people are more open than you might think. So never hesitate to reach out. And if they don't respond, you know, don't be offended. If they aren't very nice to you, that's really unfortunate. Uh, it's not very common. So just don't give up. Find the person that does respond to you, that sees you, that wants to answer your questions because we definitely have space for you here. I love that. Thank you so incredibly much for joining me today. It was so, so fun getting to chat with you. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. 
Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.